Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Philip Toltsis, MD, about the article, Evidence-Based Pediatric Outcome Predictors to Guide the Allocation of Critical Care Resources in a Mass Casualty Event, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Tulsis is a professor of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and formerly was the medical director of the pediatric ICU and division chief of pediatric critical care medicine at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Phil. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for asking me. So the allocation of ICU resources in a mass casualty event is a subject of great importance to us and, frankly, one of great fear to me. I hope I'm never in one of these. But crisis standards of care have been developed for adults with the goal of triaging patients and resources for population outcomes as opposed to optimal individual outcomes. But those criteria don't necessarily apply to children. So what is the current state of triage for children in a mass casualty event? Uh, l- let me actually start by, by expanding on, on your background. So as, as you know, as many people in the audience will know, there uh, was increasing interest in disaster planning, probably actually spawned by the 9-11 tragedy. But the endeavors actually were really driven through the middle of the last decade by concern not of a terrorist event, but concern about a pandemic event. And the original concerns actually uh, followed concerns about the spread of avian influenza. So in the middle of the first decade of the 2000s, there were a number of consensus groups that were convened that sort of like published seminal papers about how to respond to a mass casualty, both with regard to one that that was a discrete tragedy, such as a terrorist event or, or a hurricane or a tornado as well as a more protracted, prolonged event, such as a, as a pandemic. And most of that planning, as is appropriate, was directed toward uh, how to put into place mechanisms to increase or surge current capabilities so that we would never get to the point of crisis standards of care. In other words, the planning was, was really focused on how to uh, avoid getting to crisis standards of care. So the the plans that were that, that were in place recognized that we may have to alter how care was given to victims of a mass casualty, and we may do it in some funky fashion, but that they everybody who needed care would still get it. However, it was recognized among expert planners that a casualty could be so overwhelming that we may get to the point in which the number of casualty victims would outstrip any hope of providing normally life-sustaining care. And under those circumstances, many experts in mass casualty planning felt that we would do better with, a, uh, with devising a triage algorithm in which uh, life-sustaining therapy would be diverted deliberately toward patients that had the best chance of survival and, you know, conversely would be diverted away from people who had lesser chance of survival so that, as you said, the, at the population level, there would be the maximal amount of people who got through the mass casualty intact. To that end, there were triage algorithms that were developed for adults in, first in 2006 by a consensus group in Ontario. And then this was followed two years later by an American consensus group. 
And they had some of the same authors. So the triage algorithm for crisis standards of care, which is what the name that's given when the infrastructure, the medical infrastructure can no longer provide life-sustaining therapy to everybody, these triage algorithms look, look very similar. And they were devised by adult physicians, primarily for adult patients. And uh, the triage schemes actually had sort of like a very similar set of steps. And there were three steps of triaging that were proposed. In the first step, the patient would be evaluated with regard to antecedent illnesses that have intrinsically a poor long-term outcome. And there was a list of those that was offered. And if a patient was found to suffer from one of those diseases, one of those conditions, they would be opted out of the possibility of further critical care. If they passed that stage, then they were assessed by a SOFA score and by the sequential organ failure assessment score. And if the score indicated that the probability of death was greater than 90%, or alternatively, that the patient would probably survive even without critical care. So in other words, a SOFA score would identify those patients who were either so sick that they probably weren't going to benefit from critical care or so healthy that they probably didn't need it, then those patients would be opted out and they would be referred for palliative care only. And then patients who passed that barrier would then be reassessed at about 48 to 72 hours after critical care was initiated. And if they showed, again, through repeated SOFA scoring, that they weren't getting better or, in fact, were getting worse despite ICU intervention, then care would be withdrawn from, from them and uh, they would be sent for palliative care as well. The Institute of Medicine, subsequent to the publication of the triage schemes for adults, gave mandates to state health departments to develop their own variations of mass casualty planning. And most states that I'm aware of that have published their plans basically followed the same, the same paradigm that was published by the Ontario Group as well as published by the American Consensus Group. The CDC uh, convened an expert group of pediatric intensivists and infectious disease people in 2009 to try to go through a similar exercise that was pediatric-specific. And that group found that there was really not sufficient prediction equations or scoring systems in which they could reliably develop a similar pediatric triage algorithm that would accommodate crisis standards of care in a mass casualty in which children were involved. And so that group recognized and supported triage algorithms specific for crisis standards of care for children, but they deferred suggesting any particular algorithm because they felt that the, the tools that were needed were not yet devised. A number of states have tackled developing a triage algorithm for children, despite the fact that these tools didn't exist. And, and they have largely sort of adopted some of the adult scheme as sort of like as best they could. So they made a list of, of antecedent illnesses that were more specific to children, for example, that would be exclusionary. And some state schemes for children have used, for example, uh, P, the, the PMOT score as a substitute for the SOFA score. But by and large, a lot of states kind of like didn't really know what to do was as far as mass casualty triaging for children. I happened to, to be part of the group that was developing for the state of Ohio, and we ran into the same conundrum when we got to the point of the conversation in which we were trying to decide what to do with children. We realized that we didn't have the tools. 
And so I was actually approached after they penned their disaster plan by the state health department to see if I could help devise some pediatric-specific algorithms. And that's how I sort of got into the business, basically. So the work that's being published in pediatric critical care that you mentioned, as well as subsequent work, has actually been funded by the state of Ohio. So how did you approach developing a crisis standards of care allocation scheme for children? So the, our first step actually was to recognize that the, the, most, the most obvious difficulty, the hurdle that we had to pass was finding a, a, a predictive score specific for children and specific for crisis standards of care triage allocation. And the recognition was that SOFA was developed to predict mortality for adults and it had never been validated for children. And so we needed to devise de novo scores that were pediatric specific. So in order to do that, I needed a database. I don't have a database. I needed a, a PICU database that was large, that was detailed, that was accurate, that was contemporary, and that was generalizable. And the only one I knew of was the virtual PICU systems database. Now, ironically, we actually were not a VPICU participant at Rainbow at the time, but I approached the VPS administration. I mentioned to them the dilemma and how I thought they could help, and they became interested and then, in fact, not only became interested as far as offering the database, but became interested as full-time scientific partners. So our starting point really was to was to tap into the VPS database that we would need in order to derive appropriate predictive equations that were specific for pediatrics and specific for crisis standards of care. So what assumptions did you make? What triage categories did you develop? And then where did you go from there? So we had issues, frankly, with the uh, adult schemes that went over and above the lack of applicability of SOFA. And, and that, I mean, we didn't ignore that SOFA had not been validated for children, but we were actually troubled by some other aspects of the adult schemes that we figured that, that, that we saw as being, as being more intrinsic to the schemes itself. So, so these were our starting points. So, so the first, as I've said a couple times, is that we thought that SOFA wouldn't work. We mm -hmm. thought that it wouldn't be an accurate predictor of probability of death in children. But the second was the recognition that in PICUs, the mortality rate in a non-epidemic situation, granted, the mortality rate was a fraction of the mortality rate that was experienced in adult ICUs. Mm -hmm. You know, as you well know, generally in most North American pediatric ICUs, mortality is somewhere between 2 and 3%, even those that are caring for uh, patients with very high acuity, uh, where the quoted mortality in adults is somewhere between 10 and 25% and thereabouts, depending upon the patient mix. The dilemma that that presents is that a scheme that eliminates out, that diverts care away from children based upon a high predicted mortality probably would not divert a whole lot of resources away from patients that we're presenting because mortality is so intrinsically low in the pediatric setting. What we felt at the outset was that what was going to be a greater impediment to population survival and crisis standard of care situation in pediatrics was that children would be utilizing resources for 
prolonged period of time. We didn't see that the big dilemma was going to be that we would be admitting children that wouldn't survive despite uh, critical care, Mm -hmm. but it was going to be the child who was going to get intubated and stay intubated for a long period of time. And so the assumption was that it was better to support four children on a mechanical ventilator for three days apiece rather than one child on a mechanical ventilator for 12 days, assuming Mm -hmm. that none of them would survive without mechanical ventilation at all. However, there were, there, was, uh, there were no prediction equations that were devised to predict a duration of resource utilization, either in pediatrics or in adults. And so we felt the need to use the VPS database to devise those prediction equations. The third aspect about the adult uh, schemes that was troublesome to us is that the adult schemes established a static threshold under which or over which it would be decided whether the patient was afforded intensive care. So as you know, in the American consortium as well as in the Ontario consortium, it was generally quoted that somewhere between 80 and 90% mortality would be used as a threshold so that if the patient had a predicted mortality beyond that, they would be denied a care and sent to palliative care. And if if they had a predicted mortality below that, then they would be offered an, an ICU bed. But there was no attempt to moderate or modify that threshold depending upon the severity of the, sh- of the shortfall of ICU resources. That didn't sort of like make sense to us. Mm-hmm. It would seem that you would want your thresholds to be more and more stringent as the epidemic became worse and worse and larger and larger. And alternatively, or, and conversely, that you'd want your thresholds to become more and more liberal for admission mm-hmm. as more and more beds became available. And th- there was there was no concern about that with the current adult uh, threshold. So we wanted to include something that would uh, recognize that need. And then finally, uh, we made the decision, uh, I'm, I'm still not sure even in retrospect if it was the right one, we made the decision that we were only going to triage at the time of ICU presentation. As I mentioned, the adult schemes reevaluate their patients several days into their ICU course, and if they're not getting better, then the adult schemes recommend withdrawal therapy and sending for palliative care. We thought that that was going to be a hard sell in children. I'm not sure, actually, for reasons that may or may not come out as we, as we continue speaking, that that was the right decision. But we made the conscious decision that we were only going to triage at the time of admission. So how did you develop these prediction equations? Can you talk about the triage scheme? So to talk about the equations, first we have to talk about the decision tree because the equations had to follow the decision tree. We had to develop equations that would predict that a child would fall into one or the other category. And the way that the tree was developed was primarily through consensus opinion of the authors. And we just used best guesses. And I'd like to say that we used expert opinion. Uh, I guess that's, that was the, <laughs> the authors. <laughs> we, we did count the number of ICU years we had among us. And I think among all the authors, we, we had about 90 PICU years. So I guess that's probably approaching it. You know, probably anything more than that, we're just going to get into arguments. So I'm not sure if we get any more expert at it. But it was rel- relatively arbitrary. But of course, all these schemes are arbitrary. They really are best guesses. And so the, the first the first node in the decision tree that we devised was consideration of whether the child was in respiratory failure or not. And we decided to use that as a first node because common sense suggested that respiratory failure would probably be a primary factor to most pediatric intensivists on whether you actually really needed intensive care support or not. And it was also recognized that that ventilators were probably going to be a limiting source in the face of crisis standards of care, and that probably this was the one type of intervention that most people could not competently do outside of an ICU setting. 
So the first note in our decision tree was the child is in respiratory failure or the child's not in respiratory failure. If the child was in respiratory failure, then they would be considered first. And the second decision point, the second node was similar to the adult schemes, what is the risk of mortality? And if the intubated child had a risk of mortality that was above a predetermined threshold, that they, similar to the adult scheme, would be diverted to palliative care. And if they didn't, if their probability of of death was lower than that threshold, then they'd be considered for prediction of resource utilization, which we assigned as length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation. And they would similarly then be matched against a threshold for how long you're going to be in the ICU, how long you're going to be predicted to be in the ICU, and how long you're going to be predicted to be ventilated. And either the child fell above or, or below that threshold. And according to that to that judgment, they were it was determined whether they were assigned to palliative care where they had continued ICU support. Among the non-ventilated children, they would be initially evaluated to see if they fell into a low-risk group. As pediatric intensivists, it's common to preemptively admit children during conventional periods. It's common practice to admit children who have the potential for getting sicker, but ultimately don't. And in in the face of crisis standards of care, we we recognize that it would be inappropriate to sort of preemptively admit a child who probably wasn't going to require any critical intervention just in order to monitor them well. So we defined a low-risk group as a group that, by prediction, would have a predicted mortality of less than 0.5% plus a predicted number of days of mechanical ventilation of zero, plus a predicted length of stay of less than three days, of, of, of less than or equal to three days. And so the next step in the node was for the, for, the non-ventil- for the non-respiratory failure child was to evaluate whether they were in the low-risk group or not. If they, if they were in a low-risk group, then they were transferred out and they were cared for on the routine board. If they passed that hurdle, however, then they were assessed for their probability of death for the duration of mechanical ventilation and for the duration of length of stay. And then they were judged as to whether they got into the ICU based upon whether they fell above or below those thresholds in a similar fashion to the children who were mechanically ventilated. So, so our, our task was to, after we developed this decision tree, was then to develop prediction equations that would predict with the child entering ventilated, not ventilated, whether they fall into these various decision tree categories. And we did that actually with relatively straightforward prediction modeling derivation. So our first step was to choose physiologic and diagnostic variables that were collected on children entered into the VPS database upon admission and that we felt as authors, just on the basis of biological plausibility, would probably predict the outcomes of interest, probability of death and duration of resource utilization. We then took a randomly selected data set from VPS that was collected between 2009 and 2012, so it was relatively contemporary, that was 150,000 strong. And we divided that data set into a 100,000 record development set and then a 50,000 record validation set. 
Our third step was then to test the independent variables, the association of the independent variables with the outcomes of interest by univariate analysis. And then those that that passed muster were then added into a multivariate model using a logistic or linear regression, depending upon whether the outcome was dichotomous or continuous. And then the fourth step was to validate it in in really the, the usual conventional fashions. For the bivariate outcomes, we validated with looking at the area under the receiver operating characteristics curve and then looking for good calibration with Hosmer-Lemerschel. I can go into details for all these, but this is really sort of straightforward prediction modeling derivation. And for the continuous variables, we validated by devising and by measuring the R-squared. So the prediction modeling was was relatively straightforward, but of course it, it followed the decision tree. The decision tree had to define the categories that we were trying to predict, and then we devised uh, prediction equations that would predict for any child presenting to the ICU what category they would fall in. And this model allows modification of the threshold over time. For example, if you have an ongoing epidemic that gets worse or gets better, this model allows modification of where your triage threshold is. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that that's correct. So, so much as in the adult scheme, the the threshold for probability of death at ninety percent was somewhat arbitrary. In in our scheme, the threshold is is also arbitrary, but it's movable. So just going back to to thinking about about threshold for probability of death you know if you have a lot of beds then well of course we won't have a lot of beds but if you in a relative sense have a number of beds are being freed up on a daily basis even during crisis standards of care then you could set your threshold for probability of death at sort of you know 80 or 90 percent if all of a sudden the ratio of need to available resources is so large there's there's the the, the resources are so are so overwhelmed. Then you can adjust your threshold downwards to make it more to make admission criteria more stringent. Mm-hmm. So if now you're only admitting patients, you know, who have a 70% survival rather than patients who have a 90% survival, then the patients who are going to be diverted on the basis of inadequate survivability, as it were that group is going to increase, and so the admitted group is going to decrease. So this all assumes that during crisis standards of care, there's going to be sort of an incident command that's being set up by local and state health departments that are going to know on a daily basis how many ICU beds are going to be available. And most disaster plans include this type of incident command that's going to be collecting these data and then disseminating it to the available hospitals. And so, and so you, if this scheme allows one, allows public health workers and hospital workers to somewhat arbitrarily, albeit, but to adjust the, the stringency of admission criteria so that the n- number of Children that ultimately pass muster and are and are deemed appropriate for admission to the ICU matches the number of beds that are open for any for any any given week. Now, the, 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 despite the fact that that the setting of these thresholds is somewhat arbitrary, nevertheless they can be made uniform so that that one hospital is applying the exact same thresholds as the next hospital as the next hospital. So that all children are being are being evaluated with the same threshold. So there is some arbitrariness to it, but it it allows those thresholds to expand and to contract the number the the number of children that actually get designated for admission. And those same criteria can be applied region wide in the exact same fashion, so that there is some some justice to the way that all children are being evaluated. 
Let's uh, shift direction just a little bit. What is machine learning, and how did you use that in this process? So, as I as I mentioned, with some modesty, the development of the decision tree was, in fact, based upon the consensus of the authors as the best guess. And that, that first node, which is the one that divides children into those that are in respiratory failure and not respiratory failure, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense to us. I, I think that we could justify why that would be the first element of a, of a triage scheme. But in fact, it wasn't always so. And when we devised our decision tree, we really did it de novo. And this, this is not part of the adult schemes. And it wasn't until about halfway through this project that we, you know, we would talk to friends and other intensivists that we actually came to the conclusion that this was probably a good place to start. But it was really based primarily on our consensus opinion. We wanted to devise the decision tree using a method that was entirely independent of consensus opinion. And that's where we used machine learning. So machine learning is a, it's a, it's a, a computer-based computational exercise that was spawned from artificial intelligence research in the 1990s. And there's lots of different variations of machine learning and how it's been, a, a, been applied. But the exercise basically involves entering a large, complicated database into the computer and then asking the computer based upon the characteristics characteristics of the elements of the data set, asking the computer to categorize the subset of those elements in the data set in a way that are very discriminate from each other. So it's a way for the computer to develop categories from large, complicated data sets so that the categories, the ultimate categories of subsets are very distinct from one another. And that's what we did with the VPS database. The VPS database has, you know, 150,000 children with 21 different variables and four different outcomes. And by using machine learning strictly on the basis of statistics, the analyst asked the machine to divide those patients up into statistically distinct categories to the maximal amount of distinction using machine learning. And the result of that exercise was that the machine decided that the first node was to divide patients between those that were ventilated and non-ventilated, entirely unsupervised. Now, you can program machine learning, so it's called supervised machine learning. You can tell the machine to choose certain, uh, nodes going in certain directions based upon your, the prejudice of the analyst. But the way that we did the machine learning was entirely unsupervised. The, the machine went in this direction and made this decision tree entirely just based upon the statistical makeup of the of the data set and it was largely it largely mirrored the data set that we had done by consensus opinion so the advantage of the machine learning was that it approached the problem in an entirely different direction and it sort of came up with the same decision tree now i i should mention just as a parenthetically that many people will use decision trees in just the opposite direction we used it to confirm our consensus opinion but many people including people who are involved in healthcare will actually use machine learning first. They, they, if they have a very complicated data set and they're trying to find patterns of ways that the subsets are distinct from each other and they just can't see it, they can't see the patterns because uh, things are so complicated, they'll do machine learning first and then they'll look at the decision tree that was presented by machine learning and see if there's any biological plausibility to the way that the computer did it. We sort of went in the opposite direction, but we were very encouraged by the results. 
Speaks well for the expert opinions. Yeah, well, if I may say so. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> so what are the limitations of this triage scheme? So I think that, frankly, there are several that can be raised. So first and foremost, about the prediction equations. So we had prediction equations based upon ventilated patients, what is the predicted mortality, ventilated patient, what is your predicted length of stay and your predicted duration of mechanical ventilation, non-ventilated patients, and so on. So there were predicted equations for assignment to each of our categories. And the prediction equations sometimes performed well and sometimes performed less than well. So the prediction equations for mortality, both among the ventilated and non-ventilated patients were actually performed very well. They had very good areas under the receiver operating curve. They approached 0.9. They calibrated very well. And that wasn't horribly surprising because we already have pediatric prediction scores for predicting mortality that, that you know, such as PIM and PRISM that are already good predictors. The prediction for being in the uh, low-risk group was not as good. It had an area under the receiver operating curve of about 0.7. But we reasoned that miscategorization and being a low-risk group wasn't horrible because those patients then would be assigned just to the routine ward. And if they became sicker while they were hospitalized outside the ICU, then we could reevaluate them with the same scheme using the same criteria. The prediction performance of the equations where the outcomes were continuous, days of mechanical ventilation and length of stay were not as good. The R-square values were low. And that wasn't entirely surprising. Not, there's not been a lot of work in either pediatric or adult ICUs to develop prediction scores for length of stay. But those that do exist indicate that using parameters to predict length of stay on day one are not particularly accurate, that it's far more accurate to predict length of stay after using parameters after a day or two. And I said a little while ago that we made the deliberate decision that we were going to triage only at the time of admission and that we wouldn't be reevaluating children such as the adult schemes do at day two or three because we felt that it would be a hard sell to ask caregivers to extubate a child who had been given intensive care at day two or three. But if we were using day two or three parameters, we probably could have increased the accuracy of the prediction equations for the continuous variables. There's some other limitations as well. So prediction equations in general don't work well at the individual level. They work well at the population level. So for any given patient, the prediction equations, well, depending upon where the threshold is set, the prediction equations are going to be right a lot of the times, but they're going to be wrong some of the times. Mm -hmm. However, the whole orientation of crisis standards of care is to treat the population. So in fact, here actually prediction equations make sense because the unit that's being treated is the population, not the, not the individual by its very nature. Additionally, we used a non-epidemic population in order to develop the prediction equations. And some, some people who have reviewed our scheme question that. Of course, we won't know what the patient population who's affected by a pandemic will look like because we haven't seen it yet. So we developed our prediction equations against a referent population that didn't have the same illness. However, the, the fact is, is that while we're in the middle of a pandemic, we're also going to have to evaluate children who need the ICU for more garden variety illnesses. There's still going to be children who are in motor vehicle accidents, and there's still going to be cancer patients who get septic, and there's still going to be patients who come in with appendicitis. 
And so we needed to have prediction equations that were robust enough that they could predict outcome with a wide variety of illnesses. And we know that there are certainly for prediction equations for mortality, such as Apache or PIM or PRISM, they actually do pretty well with a wide variety of diseases. So we thought that these equations would do well there as well. Finally, the prediction equations were based on children who were treated during conventional therapy and who knows really what's going to be available during crisis standards of Mm -hmm. care. And so it, it may very well be that our equations, uh, our prediction equations may need to be tweaked just because of what's available during crisis standards of care. What this all says, however, is that there's no triage algorithm, ours or anybody else's, adult or children, that necessarily will be perfect when, God forbid, any this crisis standards of care situation becomes a reality. And they may work well, but we don't know. And, and it really emphasizes the obligation of public health workers and medical specialists to evaluate any triage algorithm while the disaster is evolving to see how useful it is. And if it's not useful, then we have to go back to sort of like to the drawing board and we have to tweak the equations to make them more accurate. But this is certainly not the end of the story. Any triage algorithm for crisis centers of care is going to have to be tested in real time as the disaster evolves. What further planning do we need to do to be prepared to the degree that we can, given, as you've said, there's always a huge amount of uncertainty for, God forbid, a mass casualty event involving children? Yeah, so outside of, of the triage scheme, there's there's really a breathtaking list of issues that need to be addressed. So the scheme is the scheme, but the administration of crisis standards of care, who's going to do it and how it's going to be done, if you start to think about it beyond the surface, it, it actually really becomes breathtaking. The adult algorithm, as you know, was published in a symposium in CHEST in a supplement in 2008. And then, as as I'm sure many readers are aware, there was a revision of those recommendations in the fall of 2014. In that initial symposium, the last chapter deals with crisis standards of care, and it's written in the usual, you know, scientific fashion about how we're going to administer crisis standards of care. But I must say that bubbling underneath that prose are just mind-boggling concerns, and and it's almost great prose. I mean, it's 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 better than watching a movie about a <laughs> pandemic because it's it's really real scientists trying to grapple with like the unthinkable. So just for example, okay, so the administration of crisis standards of care, it has been recommended. The administration of crisis standards of care is going to be, or of these algorithms, is going to be done by a trio of experts that are going to be wandering through the hospital, making sure that the triage scheme is being, uh, is being applied in a uniform and just fashion. Who are those three people going to be? I don't want to be around those three people. I don't want to be one of those people. (laughs) So how's that actually going to work? And oh, by the way, you know, in in the middle of of a pandemic, we're all going to be sick. So the administration is going to actually require, you know, more healthcare workers, but we're all going to be home with our families and half of us are going to be ill. And so who's going to be doing that? It, It also, the administration also, as it must, it also offers the opportunity for families or for direct caregivers to appeal 
appeal for a decision to remove or defer critical care away from a particular patient. You know, we're not going to have enough time to empty beds, even under the best of circumstances. Now the beds are going to be filled for another 12 or 24 hours. And who's going to do the appeal? I mean, how is that going to work? And then I actually still don't exactly know how there's going to be coordination of the adult and the ne- and the neonatal and the and the pediatric ICUs. You know, we don't really right now we barely speak to each other. We're all sort of like siloed into our own little ICU worlds. But we're all going to have to be talking to each other because there's going to be one great big ICU and 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 I don't think that anybody's really grappled with how that communication is going to work. We all know that that communication is going to be key, but we don't know how it's going to work. And then the final one is, and every disaster planner emphasizes this, but there's got to be buy-in to the general public. The general public is not used to doing population triage. They're focused on Uncle Harry's going to go to the ICU and they're going to treat him as best they can for as long as they can. And it's going to be very different. And it's going to be very different for physicians. It's going to be even more different for the general public. And so well before we have to deal with this tragedy, the plan has to be proposed to key community stakeholders, ethicists, religious workers, government officials. And they're going to have to understand this. They're going to have to understand that we're working toward population survival, which I think that, you you know, people, if they think about it, make sense, but it's, it's going to come at the expense of, of diverting care away from people who would normally survive. And it's going to be an extraordinarily different mindset. And we have to have buy-in from the general public before we can even think about any of these triage schemes. Which is going to be extraordinarily difficult to do. Yeah, I think so also. I'm not even sure who those stakeholders are. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This has all been very, very interesting and a a little bit scary to talk about, but I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. Do you have any further comments you'd like to make? No, I don't think so, but I I really do appreciate being invited. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me about this, and and I wish you a good day. You too, and I appreciate all of the, the work that you have done on this, and I hope that we never have to use it. Yeah, me too. We have been speaking today with Dr. Philip Tolsis from Cates Western Reserve University, Cleveland, Ohio, about the article, Evidence-Based Pediatric Outcome Predictors to Guide the Allocation of Critical Care Resources in a Mass Casualty Event, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. 
To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.